Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. Today, we'll be talking to Casey Tromer about her poem, The Couple, which appeared in issue 20 of The Common. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Casey Tromer is the author of the debut poetry collection, We Call Them Beautiful, and the chapbook, The Hasp Tongue. She is the founder of the collaborative audio project Queensbound and assistant director of communications at NYU Gallatin. She lives in Jackson Heights, Queens with her son. Casey Tromer, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Emily. I'm glad to be here. We're so excited to have you. We always start off by uh, setting the scene since, you know, since we're all about place here at the Common. Would you tell us where you're calling from and what it's like there? Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, I am in uh, Jackson Heights, Queens. Uh, and. We had a little bit of uh, summer in spring yesterday. It was 87 degrees, but wow. now we have like a, yeah, it was ridiculous. <laughs> now we have a properly, you know, rainy, slightly overcast spring day. Um, and it's, it's beautiful here. So <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. Would you, would you start us off by reading your poem from issue 20, The Couple? Oh, sure. The Couple. Louise Bourgeois, Mass Mocha, 2019. Inside the bounded mercury, we keep going. All the circuits that close make serpents of us, constrict and envelop every tender corner until only our smallest portion is distinct, our feet like the end of a sentence. We suspend ourselves in a room full of light, but take none in. Though we might call it love, it's not. It's only the old narratives winding through us, moving their casings over us until we are a closed circuit of knowing. What I want more than company is air. Well, perhaps to be held lightly, the faint feeling of you at my waist as I turn open. But first the task is to command the molecules to take in more, to occupy the sealed space. There is no straight line to this evolution, no greater alchemy than adding oxygen, no end. Thank you so much for reading that. I love how how physical the poem is. It feels very, very tactile. Well, Would you tell us how, how you came to, to write it? You know, what inspired it? Uh, yeah, I, I love Mass Mocha, which is, I think, in your neck of the woods. Um, yeah. And uh, it's a place that, uh, you know, for people who don't know, a contemporary art gallery uh, with an enormous collection and a huge sprawling footprint um, located in, old, in an old factory building uh, in uh, Western Mass. And I have gone there often that the collections they have are very compelling to me. And I love Louise Bourgeois. Uh, I love her work. And this piece uh, I kept coming back to in the museum uh, on this particular visit, which was 2019. And uh, I just kept looking at it. It's an, it's a, it's a, a sculpture that's suspended from the ceiling in an empty room uh, made of, I should know what it's made of. Uh, it's, it's appears like it looks like mercury to me, like poured mercury on a large scale. And when you look at it closely, all of these wrapped lines of it um, 
you can quietly discern if you look feet on the bottom and the heads at the top and there are all of these lines wrapping around themselves and I found it incredibly disturbing um, as her work often is and uh, one of the things that I've been writing about and thinking about uh, are artworks that stay with me that uh, compel me to look and relook. so I kept coming back to that as I went around the museum and just was meditating on why it was such a disturbing um, and compelling piece. And so then I wanted to write about that. And, and that's some of the poems that I've been working on lately have been ekphrastics, these descriptive works of, of uh, descriptive poems that, uh, about works of art. And this was one of several that I've done. But um, when, I, when I looked at it again, because I haven't looked at it in a little while, um, it's funny that I wrote it in 2019 because it's got a lot to do with breathing and air and space. And we certainly had a lot of time to think about those things in the past while. Yeah. I, you know, I looked up the, a photo of the artwork. I think actually maybe you even sent it, sent it to us when, when we had the poem. And it is, uh, it's a, a really interesting work of art. Maybe we can link to it in the show notes. Um, mm. Cause, cause it is sort of sinister looking. But I also think, yeah, I don't know. There's something very intimate about it as well. You know, the, the idea being that there's sort of two people wrapped up in each other or wrapped up in something larger than themselves. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's that's what I, I thought. There's There are ways to read this, but the thing that was resonating for me the more that I looked at it was the sense of, uh, of uh, asphyxiation and, you know, the collapse of oneself into another. But I could also see it reading as a, like a complete envelopment of identity with another person, which if that person were someone you'd want to be completely <laughs> enveloped by might be, might be a complete project of life. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, it's worth going to see in person and, I have a friend, a writer friend, Danielle Lazarin, who was in a residency at Masmoka and went to look at it. And she had read the poem and she'd seen the image, but she said, I didn't see the feet, which I thought was kind of great. The things you can't, you know, really get to unless you're in, in its company. Yeah. I also think maybe some of the, for me, some of the sinister feeling from it comes from like if that I feel like if it was sitting on a pedestal like if it was a standing sculpture mm. it would feel a little different but it's hanging from the ceiling and it just feels so captive and and the feet yeah the feet are prominent <laughs> yeah it, it, it's a kind of uh it, it it ends up looking like a kind of cocoon which also is in keeping with her work and it's suspended in a in a, a room that's completely empty so there's no ignoring it and that suspension of course like that has all kinds of difficult echoes too of body suspended and so yeah there's this there's this underlying menace and the fact that the way that they've housed it at Masmoka it has all of this light reflecting off of it because it's a highly highly reflective surface so it's extremely dynamic as well um and that's part of what makes it so uh, appealing i think or fascinating yeah, absolutely. Would you uh, tell us a little bit about the, the series that you're talking about where you respond to, to visual artwork? Oh, yeah. Um, so um, my family is a I, I come from a family of artists. Um, I have a half brother and half sister who are, um, you know, a de- you know, they're a generation older than me. Um, and my sister, uh, I don't know that she's doing stained glass anymore, but she's a stained glass artist. My brother is a photographer um, and painter. And my mom is a watercolorist. And my oh, wow. Uh, my my sisters um, my, my brother-in-law at the time 
that I was growing up uh, as a welder and painter. So I grew up with all of these makers and artists around me um, and ended up being the person who tells stories. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I also make art, but um, but I've been uh, thinking since I uh, published my first collection in 2019 about the kind of work that I wanted to write uh, and engage with. And that collection is very, it has a lot of confessional work and uh, very it's very narrative driven. And I wanted to step away from my own story or telling pieces of what I understand to be my own story in a very um, direct way. And I was thinking, what are, what are works of art that I return to that I keep with me in the same way that I keep lines of poetry in my head? Why were these compelling to me? And so I've just gone back and started looking at um, the work of the work of Bourgeois, uh, Lee Bontecu, Kara Walker, um, uh, Merle Landerman, Euclid, uh, different artists. And then I uh, started thinking that this uh, would be a way to approach writing the next collection and writing uh, works, ekphrastic works about specific works of art by these artists. And uh, and then over um, from January to April, I had the great good fortune of having a, a writer's residency uh, through the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council on Governor's Island, which is a small island uh, just off the tip of the southern tip of Manhattan uh, that was closed for 200 years <laughs> to the public, uh, but it had a military base on it. Uh, and they have uh, the LMCC has a, a studio residency there and it's closed off season uh, during the months that we were in residence. And I was in residence with a number of artists. So I was in a working studio space with artists writing poems about art. And that kind of also gave me um, more ideas and inspiration and ways of thinking about art and uh, artists uh, about whom I want to write. So that was that was kind of wonderful and magical to be on that uh, in that very unusual space in the wintertime uh, in the winter of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm so glad that you you talked a little bit about that that residency because, I, you know, I did my own little research about Governor's Island after mm-hmm. after you mentioned it. And it, uh, it's so interesting that, uh, you know, it has such a strange history and I think it must be the coolest place to do a residency. It was, think, it was, okay. it was, oh, I didn't mean to interrupt you yet. It was, it was fantastic. It was, um, but, but you were about to say something else. Go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, um, I did my first residency right before the pandemic, like a month before the pandemic. And it was with a lot of visual artists. And I had not thought that that would be like anything that would be fruitful for me or, or particularly interesting to me because I'm not a huge art person. I, you know, I enjoy it, but um, but actually being around all these artists was, you know, the, the writers among them, we loved it. We loved being around mm-hmm. the artists. And I think that, um, especially during the pandemic and everything, it must've been, you know, a very, a very fruitful place to be, to do, to do work, that kind of work. Yeah. Well, I'm, I am, uh, I grew up in new England and Connecticut and Maine and upstate New York, but the Mainer in me who lives in New York was so, <laughs> so happy to take a ferry every day that mm-hmm. I could go to the island. It kind of, that, that bring, bringing together this kind of remote ferry ocean um, experience with my, you know, deep New York um, history uh, was kind of a, a beautiful kind of sol- a solution to the difficulty for me sometimes of living in New York. Um, and when we went to the island, um, we were just a group of, I think there were 23 of us all together in this enormous space with a lot of COVID protocols. And I had a million dollar view from my studio um, that, that was 
just incredible. And it really, it really, I'm, I'm always interested in the intersections of art and writing. I'm interested in artistic overlaps anyway, but for me to be able to be around the majority of artists and to just be in that space of a different kind of making uh, really made it really made an impact on me to be able to do that. I've, I have a, a 10 year old and uh, I'm a single parent, so I haven't been able to do a residency since I did one uh, years and years ago, well before my son was born. Uh, so this is it was this kind of pandemic uh, benefit <laughs> that mm-hmm. some good things have come out of this, that I was able to do a, a local residency that still felt very far away. And that place is a really incredible incredible place, uh, full of storied history. And I, I'm going back as a writer in residence uh, for uh, another another location at one of the Nolan houses on the island uh, through uh, this organization called Works on Water. So I'm again going to be the writer with artists around me on Governor's Island because I wanted to continue that once, I, once it had started. Uh, I became a complete, com- I completely fell for the island. And also it was incredible to be there when no one else was there. Um, over the years that I've been in New York, I've been watching. Um, I've been watching the uh, the island kind of get uh, to open up and expand it to the, and expand its offerings to the public. They've done a bunch of uh, building uh, on the south side of the island. Uh, that's and they've they've brought like food trucks and they've brought more programming and arts and over the years. Um, that I've lived in New York. So that's also been interesting. But this experience was incredible in that we were going over on an island that was empty. And uh, especially in the winter, it was really nice to be able to to be there, to be in company, but distant company or carefully managed company with other people after having been so so enveloped in my tiny space. Um, and so that was that was something. And also just to like, be on an island where there'd been fresh snowfall and see like you know bunny <laughs> tracks <laughs> and uh in bird tracks uh, and you know where no no people had trod <laughs> was really nice as well yeah that's not the the typical new york city experience in winter right, I guess. <laughs> right exactly yeah our slush usually turns right our, our our snow almost immediately turns to terrible brown slush yeah <laughs> but that's so great i'm so glad you're gonna get to go back there as well me too. Yeah. I love reading poetry, but the process of making it is just a total mystery to me. What can you tell me about writing and revising a poem like like the couple or, or a different poem? Are there like steps or stages that you always do or is it pretty organic? Does it depend on the poem? Yeah, um I it really does depend on the poem in that the poems will happen very differently. So the couple is a poem that I it's one of those poems that I was, that kind of came to me, not cut from whole cloth, but I, I sat and wrote what remained, what what still has remained to be the bulk of the poem uh, in, in a few sittings. Mm -hmm. So I, sometimes poems just come to you, you've been cooking them in your head uh, or something, something uh, triggers uh, the ability to write about um, a text. Uh, and that's what happened with this one. Other times I just have poems kind of different poems, st- different starts of poems happening. I found actually, and that's a lesson that I've learned from, from making visual art that I do better when I have multiple, multiple projects, multiple poems, multiple uh, canvases or, you know, uh, 
platforms going so that I don't put so much pressure on myself to will a certain kind of uh, poem to exist or will a certain kind of artwork to happen. Um, If I have several things going at once, it kind of divides up my, uh, my drive to completion and allows me to be a little bit more exploratory if that makes sense. It um, makes so much sense. That's a great idea. I should do that. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of plate spinning, you know, yeah. you've seen, yeah, the kind of plate spinning theory that that way there's less pressure. I, I'm, you know, try not to be a perfectionist, mm-hmm. fail, <laughs> um, which is a very perfectionist thought, uh, perfectionistic thought. Um, but, uh, but that kind of diversifying my attention in that way, once I have the core of something makes a difference. So this poem was, Sometimes I've written poems where I've recorded an audio of a stream of consciousness, transcribed that, and then edited from there. Sometimes I do automatic writing. That's something I had asked the artists on Governor's Island, and I'm asking again of the artists I'll be working with uh, with Works on Water to give me the names of artists and to do some automatic writing in response to works that I'm looking at. Um, Sometimes I just generate that way. And other times I have, you know, if there's a poem that I'm writing in form, uh, then I have a container that exists already that I write into. So it really depends on uh, the the type of poem. And the process of revision is always just keeping distance because generally, uh, like any mother, (laughs) you love your creation when you first make it, but maybe it needs a little growing up. So getting some distance from a poem is always helpful putting it away, uh, loving it to bits when it first appears in whatever form, and then finding a way to kind of shape it um, is, is, always, is always a good uh, policy in my book. And also I, I use, I'm interested in audio and I'm interested in the sounds of poetry. Um, so I, she says swallowing, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, 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 I also read the poems aloud to see how they're working. Um, and I do that with other with the poems that I admire. Uh, if I want to understand a poem, I will record it uh, to look at the architecture and structure of the poem. So sometimes I will take a poem off the page and and listen to it and see if I can edit it that way. So because I've been writing for a long time and because I'm not often satisfied with the poems I write, I have all these different editorial processes <laughs> that I use. Um, yeah, so th- that's maybe an answer. No, that's great. That was so interesting. I, I like the idea of having like a couple different like attack plans for how to how to get to revision when you, when you know it's needed, but having to kind of, you know, pivot depending on what the poem needs. I'm also wondering like f- for specifically ekphrastic poetry, like are you taking notes when you're standing there? Or are you just like absorbing it and then later you go home and do like a stream of consciousness recording or, or do you take photos? Oh, that's so. That, yeah, that's a great question because right now, what I've been what I've been writing lately are um, poems that respond to works of art that have stayed with me, so they're in my conscious memory. Um, so I, when I've gone back to the image, it's really just to remind myself of something that I thought I understood from looking at it from when I first encountered it. So a lot of the poems that I've been writing, this will change, but the poems that I've been writing right now have been. Uh, thinking about a piece like the bourgeois's piece, the couple and, and trying to come to terms with it and thinking about the intersection of the first time I encountered it and why for me personally, not that this always goes in the poem, but why for me personally, that piece resonated with me at that time 
And it's interesting in the same way that books change when you reread them, poetry or fiction or nonfiction sometimes even, um, it's interesting to go back to a work of art when you've seen it. But I think as I'm seeing, as I'm getting suggestions from artists and seeing new work, um, I'm taking pictures and making mental notes, but not necessarily making um, any kind of written notation about them. I just went to see the Alice Neal show at the Met, for example, and she has a a canvas called Thanksgiving that actually made me laugh out loud (laughs) because it's just this miserable carcass of a turkey in the sink with like an Ajax (laughs) can visible. And to me, it just read like another Thanksgiving, like, you know, the, the, the harangue of having to make Thanksgiving and, and it kind of, it just made me laugh. So I definitely am thinking about that piece and I did take a picture of that and that's a new piece that I would be writing about. Oh, cool. You and I first connected through Twitter when you were launching your project Queens bound, which we can talk about later. And your first poetry collection, we call them beautiful was coming out at that time. And the, and the common featured two poems from that collection on your publication day. And I, I really love both of them, and they're, they're sort of our we call them dispatches from Queens because they're in our in our dispatches feature, and and they're so precisely New York, like really rooted in Queens and the subway and the experience of moving through the city. Personally, I wonder if you would read my favorite of these, which is called "Off the Rusey for us. Sure, yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, this poem, um, I, I was so glad that the common liked these because I I love the common. Um, I love the thinking behind the journal uh, and yeah, the approach that you've taken. And, um, and so I was honored to have them on the dispatches and, and um, this poem uh, is modeled on O'Hara's the day lady died. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and this is also a poem where I was, I was not, I was having a moment where I wasn't able to write. And so I went back and looked at a poem that I admire. That poem is just a heartbreaker and very New York. <laughs> and uh, I looked at the architecture of the poem and I wanted to write a kind of homage to the way that, to the way that, uh, that O'Hara manages, the way that I understood O'Hara to be managing uh, the poem. So, so I uh, looked at the structure of it and then wrote this um, as an homage. Off the Rusey, after O'Hara. I get off the seven and head home past the chase and the Jackson Heights penguin that last week someone dressed as a bunny. And I'm thinking of Frankie's I do this, I do that poems. And my phone is dead again and I can't afford to replace it. All I want to hear is Spoon singing, got no regard for the things that you don't understand. But maybe, as Lorna said, it's a gift. And there's a poem across the street waving yoo-hoo over here and trying very hard to get my attention. I get onto 37th, near what's left of the Brunson building, after the fire on Easter Monday, and I head past the Met, not that one, which they renamed Food Town, but which Honor and Joe and I will always call the Met, not that one. And then I left onto 77th and past our coffee shop where Afsal stands outside talking, but for once does not say hello, even though he looks straight at me, and it's fine. I I walk past the Berkeley and over 35th Ave, and I guess I'm home, considering that my keys have opened the door even before I realized I had them in my hand. And everything is where I left it, even in the bedroom where I keep waking alone quite suddenly to find, yes, I left you. You've never even been here. 
Thank you so much for reading that. I remember just being so delighted when you sent this poem over. Frank O'Hara is my favorite poet in the world. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you capture so much of his spirit and style in this. And also the sort of tongue-in-cheek humor that I think he has, but but I personally don't see that often in poetry. And so I just... I love that. And, you know, of course, this, this version of Queens is very, like, specific and idiosyncratic. And, you know, there's names and places that, that we, the reader, don't aren't familiar with, which feels very O'Hara as well. You know, like he was writing for himself and maybe his friends. Would you talk a little bit about, um, like, putting this poem together? Like, uh, when you write when you write after someone, like when you write after O'Hara, like, are there things you're looking out for? Like, is there is there a risk that it will be too similar? Like, what, what, how do you balance that? Oh, well, first, I just want to say thank you for the, the kind words about the poem. That I'm so glad that you like it. Um, usually, I, you know, this kind of, I felt like this poem uh, was learning from O'Hara, and I definitely wanted to reference him as the architect of the way that the poem moves. And I wanted to, you know, kind of gesture toward him. I don't think I'm I'm any any level of the poet that he is, but I love him. Um, and this is about a personal devastation, you know, not about, someone dying the way that the day that he died is. But um, one thing that I always loved about him is the way that he doesn't, that he's happy to have the poem be very specific and be very much about what it's about for the people who are able to access and understand it, Uh, which is not to say it's a closed door. It's just not, uh, it's just relying on you to, it's relying on itself to have other things to recommend it. And Mm -hmm. so I, I tend, I, I know that there are poets who, to whom I'm extremely indebted, like Adrian Rich is one of those poets who's just in my head, um, uh, Plath as well, um, and O'Hara definitely, and uh, uh, David Wohan as well. There are many more, but um, uh, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks. <laughs> uh, but I, in, it, this was an exercise that just happened to do well. And, um, and I'm sorry, I don't know if I'm answering your question fully. Uh, I just I was just trying out a, to get a poem on the page because I was a little bit stuck at the time. I, I, yeah, I could see that this would be a really good solution for that too, because you can kind of just like slip inside this, like it's your world, but through like O'Hara's shoes or something like that. You know, like a little a little bit freeing in that way. Yeah, and if you love O'Hara, I hope you've read the Brad Gooch's City Poet biography of him. I haven't. Oh gosh, it's fantastic as a biography and also as a kind of account of New York city in the fifties and sixties. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty incredible. And it made me love, sometimes biographies don't make you love the the, yeah. the subject more, but this one definitely did. I mean, and it wasn't that it was saccharine in any way, but I would recommend that book as a, an, as an amazing biography and an amazing kind of an, a way to understand his poetry um, through his, through his life. That's great. Yeah, I will absolutely yeah. read that. He he certainly had a very interesting life. <laughs> yeah. Um, the common focuses on work with a strong sense of place, and I, you know, uh, but that's why your project Queensbound really jumped out at me when I first saw it because I just think it. I mean, I think it's genius, but I also think it's it does that great work of rooting art or poetry in in, in the real world and and in a place. Would you tell our listeners about that project? Sure. Yeah. Um, thank you for for the for, for that. Um, the Queensbound is a project I developed. Um, I was being considered for the Queens Poet Laureate in 2015, and they asked this really fantastic question, which was, if you were to be appointed, and I wasn't, which is totally fine. But it, um, 
the project was they wanted us to develop a project that would speak to the whole borough. And the question was, how are you going to reach every corner of this borough? Which, of course, is a great question. How do you reach the world's borough? How do you reach a place that is a place of all the places <laughs> or mm. whose inhabitants are drawn from all over the world, speaking so many languages and coming from so many different cultures? And so I just tried to think in terms of how Queens is connected. And of course, the subway is that uh, means of connecting us. And uh, and so I thought about, too, about, you know, the Poetry in Motion Project, which has its merits. But one thing that always struck me, you, you um, um, do you know that project, I should ask? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that. Oh, yeah. So sorry, I didn't mean to. It's, uh, they have uh, poems in the subways uh, from well-known poets. Oh, okay. And, I have certainly so, seen those. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. So, so one thing that's always struck me sitting on the train, chugging along through Queens, was that the poems didn't really necessarily, not that they have to, but they didn't speak to the place that they were traveling through. And so in thinking about that question, how would you bring uh, poetry to Queens or bring out the poetry that's in Queens? Um, I, and, and that other kind of thing that was bothering me about the conceit of poetry motion, which again has its merits, um, was to bring them together and to think high, low, like poetry is always uh, often seen as something that happens, you know, for uh, an anointed few in these airless rooms. Uh, why couldn't it be something that could be more public and shared? And so I should say it's, it's this collaborative audio project where I've asked poets from throughout Queens to contribute poems about their neighborhoods. And then I approached this very talented young designer I knew uh, to create a subway, uh, Queens Lines only subway map for us. And he used Massimo Vignelli's 1979, I believe, uh, well-designed and somewhat controversial uh, subway map as the template for it. And then we had a web designer, uh, Lexi Namer, who created a website for us where we plotted out the audio. So we just released our third edition um, and we have now 44 poets for the over 150 station stops in Queens. Um, so yeah, that's the project. I think I've explained it, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm so deep inside of it that I don't always know. So let me know if that was clear. Or not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I also, I just saw the press release that you're, you're putting out your new sort of 2021 edition now. Um, and I, you know, I've recognized some of the poets' names in there. Um, uh, I guess, would you talk a little bit about the, the events that you've had with people actually reading their poetry on the subway? Yeah, so uh, well, f f the this new edition, I want to say, is the first one we we're including a poem in Bengali. So the first poem to be included in a language other than English, awesome. which is something we wanted to do as a, you know, we, that's something we'd like to do as we continue to have translations or poems that reflect polyphonic queens and also, you know, make space for people who are not, uh, you know, who make, make space for other listeners to, to the project. So one thing that um, came about when we were first launching was, oh, I was trying to think, how are we going to manage a reading where everyone's reading one single poem? And we had, you know, over 15 uh, poets reading. And it, I just thought it would be kind of terrible to just go from poem to poem to poem. So I was thinking we didn't want to necessarily give people 
more time to read because that would just make it an epically long reading. And yet it was too short with one poem per person and too jarring. And then a local artist in the neighborhood, Deborah Wasserman and I were talking actually in our, uh, in our shared garden. (laughs) Um, And she said, why don't you do it on the train? Which was a really fantastic idea. So I uh, organized uh, a kind of flash mob poetry reading as the launch. And I'd done some work with the Queens Museum Um, And so I partnered with them and the poets who were interested in reading on the train, interested in Able, uh, gathered at the first station stop in Queens, which is the Vernon Jackson line. Um, That was in 20, oh gosh, 2018. Uh, So very much still in the throes of, in the throes of Trumpiness. Now we're just in the wake of Trumpiness, in the throes of Trumpiness uh, and, and uh, early Trumpiness. And also uh, at the time, Jeff Bezos was trying to land his helicopter in Queens and take That's over. Right. So we were feeling very <laughs> extremely beleaguered. Uh, we met on the, we met at the Vernon Jackson stop, the first stop in Queens on the seven train. And we took it to Metz Willits Point, which is the city field stop. And we took over the first car of the train and we just got very lucky. Uh, I'd had some, some student journalists who were interested in filming uh, us reading. And we spaced the poets out in the train and had poets read, you know, uh, each were they were spaced out in 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 three sections of the train, so they kind of just passed the baton to the next person, and we took over and read, and it was really an incredibly beautiful and affirming experience. It just came off really well, and then we gathered in the panorama of the city of New York, which is this amazing floor floor um, installation of the city that was built for the World's Fair. Um, and we did a we did a reception in in the panorama at the Queen's Museum. So it was a really fantastic celebration. And our intention had been to have this happen haha, last April, <laughs> um, which, of course, did not happen because uh, COVID had other plans for all of us. And so uh, we ended up pivoting last April to launching the new website, uh, which was kind of uh, I was glad that we had the poems we had so that you could travel on the subway without being on the subway during a time that we Mm -hmm. couldn't be. And now, now we've launched this next, this third edition also during the pandemic. So I'm hoping, uh, not knowing the future and not knowing how things are going to change and if they're going to change for the better, that we may be able to do this again. My, my thinking was we might be able one day if we get funding for the project to kind of blitz out, take over all the train lines and run a simultaneous reading so cool. <laughs> um, and, you know, call it a wrap, <laughs> uh, but we're not there yet. And, and, um, and I'm hoping we can get a poem for every station stop in Queens. Uh, and we're getting con- contributions from, you know, established poets, emerging poets. And I'm trying to kind of make it a, a, along with my editorial board members, uh, we're trying to make it a kind of time capsule and, uh, an encompassing project. Uh, thank you so much for explaining about that. I just, when I think about this project, I always think about you all reading on the subway. Cause I think it is just, uh, you know, that's just like a magic moment and the way you describe <laughs> it. I'm, I'm glad that it felt that way in the moment. Cause I think that's a very cool way to, to really bring, bring poetry, you know, really into the city. Um, and, and 
the online components of it are very cool. You know, like the map you described, the artwork where pe- you can click on different stations and then read read the poem that's associated with that station is very cool. But I do like to imagine you all just riding the subway reading poetry. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really, I mean, I wasn't sure. I had anxiety about <laughs> doing it. And so did the poets. And so in that way, it was a risk for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, because who knows, you don't know who's going to, you never know who's going to be on your subway train. And, um, and we just kind of lucked out in that, at first people were ignoring us and then they paid attention. And then I watched some people just be delighted. And that was also wonderful to see because it's a, it's a public project and it's meant to be shared, not just with poets, but with everyone. And so it was really wonderful to see people do the New York ignoring that (laughs) we are quite good at and then, but still paying attention and then being annoyed and then turning their attention and then being brought in, which made me so happy and it just really felt like in this moment where we were so beleaguered by I mean not that we are <laughs> anyway in that particular moment <laughs> yeah um you know we were so we were we were feeling so understandably beleaguered by Trump and the Muslim ban and everything that he was making possible and bringing out in in the city and in the country um and then also Bezos coming to like hyper gentrify and whitewash all of you know, amazing queens. So it really connected us and it felt, uh, it really felt like we became a, we became a lovely community in that moment. And that's kind of continued even through the pandemic when we were asked to do, uh, we were commissioned to do a, um, something for Onassis USA and the Queens Museum. And we did a collaborative poem that is a video poem. Uh, we did that together, you know, while we were apart um, as a way of honoring queens and and thinking about what we were going through in the early days of the epide- of the pandemic, because of course Queens was one of the, the epicenter of the epicenter, and and the and the and really was touched very dramatically and quickly when COVID uh, COVID came to town. <laughs> Yeah, that that is was going to be precisely my next question to you because I, I know you, you live in Jackson Heights, and in the early days of the pandemic, that was that was absolutely the epicenter of, of New York COVID situation, and New York was sort of the epicenter of America's COVID situation and the world's. And, and you and I emailed about that a little bit last year when it was still pretty bad. I, I wonder, like, how it feels to you now, like having been through that with your neighborhood and your city. What do you think about it now when you reflect back on that time? Yeah, I mean, it was, it's, we are, we are coming out of, you know, real trauma and loss and grief, all of us. I mean, the world is, um, but at that time it was, uh, it's hard to, it's hard to talk about in some ways. I'm, I'm extremely grateful to be in the neighborhood and in the community that I'm in. Uh, we are a very connected, supportive community and that really helped uh, in the moment where we were all in so much shock and when people around us were dying. I mean, hundreds of people died in a one mile radius of where we live. Um, And so many people were sick and so many food lines were stretching blocks and blocks and still and still are. Um, One of the things that was very obviously revealed is that this is an immigrant space and uh, and immigrant communities of Queens show up for each other. And uh, that was really wonderful to see, uh, to, to, to benefit from uh, um, in terms of connection, looking out for each other. I mean, I had 
we I live on the first floor of a, of a, an apartment and my window became a pass through for like pies and doll and you know and uh, you know meals and company and conversation and also became like the window that we opened up to do the 7 p.m. clap but mm-hmm. we we live my son and I live a block and a half from Elmhurst Hospital uh, and we used to have planes flying over us which was incredibly annoying and um, a a terrible sound. And then that was just traded for the sounds of sirens all the time. And just this terror, this deep terror that we couldn't leave the house, which I know everyone has felt, but in an extremely densely populated place like we are in, it was incredibly difficult to feel like you couldn't go out of your uh, apartment because there are always people close by. So kind of a long answer. I I feel like what one thing that's interesting and it kind of speaks to the the commons mission and and actually to Queensbound and to thinking about place is that we've all had to have this really deep uh, reckoning with who we are, where we are and who we choose to be with. Mm -hmm. And I think no matter what, that is a a helpful audit to have in your life. Mm -hmm. Why am I here? Who am I with? Where am I? why have I chosen this? And if it isn't uh, how I want it to be or what I want it to be, how can I, um, how can I change that or um, change it for myself or change it for everyone around me? And yeah, that's, that's a long answer. <laughs> no, you're right. I think it has definitely been a moment of reckoning for a lot of people. I think a lot of people are, you know, changing their ideas about where they want to live and that kind of thing mm-hmm. based on, mm-hmm. based on that experience. Yeah. Um, I know that you wrote a poem called Epicenter about the experience we just talked about. I wonder if you would read that for us. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I wrote this, um, when was this? This was in April. <laughs> I think I wrote it in April. Um, when the clap was the 7 PM clap, which is happening in New York, which I assume people have heard about was, that was an incredible thing. It was really magical because after all of this, you could feel the tension, you could feel death hovering. It was really terrifying. And then suddenly everyone would throw open their windows and you would be like, oh, there you are. <laughs> you know, in this place, it's always been noisy and going and revved up right. was suddenly quiet. And then, and then there would be this burst of humanity <laughs> and people playing music and other things. Um, so yeah, so I wrote a poem called Epicenter, um, a sonnet for Jackson Heights. Silence has come to our city and now... At seven, we throw open the windows to clap and cheer and scream and beat the drums. It feels so good to scream. Crying takes too much. Where there were cars and planes, now sirens wail all the way to Elmhurst. The swinging doors of the ER opening to receive so many neighbors, both known and unknown. When I teach, a student points to the break, a caesura in the heart of a poem, opening like a street to allow safe passage. Why did the poet choose this, she asks. Why break it there? And every answer I summon sends me back to the window. Thanks so much for reading that. I, I, lo- I, I really love that. Thank you. We, Actually, we just, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I should say that I was teaching uh, O'Hara's The Day Lady Died. <laughs> That's the caesura in the poem. Oh, nice. At the risk of seeming like I only know one single poem <laughs> from another <laughs> poet. <laughs> um, but that was the caesura, and we were talking about breaks, and um, and she wanted to, she wanted to understand why he broke the poem where he broke it. Funny, I forgot oh. that that was the poem. So <laughs> that's perfect. I love that. Um, so 
you talked a little bit earlier about also being a visual artist and coming from a family of visual artists. Um, but I did not know that you were a visual artist until I was doing some of the research for, for this podcast. Um, and the art you have on your website is really, really interesting. I wonder if, like, how, how would you describe it? Like, would you call it collage? Is, Is that what it is? Oh yeah, yeah. I I've done collage. I ha- I should say in a in I, the last series I did, I think is on the website. I did a series of monsters of made out of sewing. I used sewing pattern paper as a kind yeah. of constraint, so to use like a one medium, one uh one palette constraint, um, and then I used all of these sewing pattern paper sewing pattern paper to create different kinds of monsters, um, and I did that just. Uh, I just started finding monsters in the, <laughs> in what I was looking for. Uh, you find what you're looking for, and so I did a series of those. I haven't um, I haven't been doing much art, and that is just because I uh, am I am a single parent. I have a full time job. I have Queensbound, and I have my own work. And so one of those things I had to set aside. And unfortunately, for right now, I it's art. It, it's not always going to be, but I kind of had to prioritize because I don't have a machine for making time, for <laughs> which sure. I really wish I did. If you did, art, I would be coming to see you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I love actually making art brings me more joy than making poems because poems often can feel like, I don't know, maybe the stakes are higher for me mm. in some ways because I think of myself more as a poet than as an artist. So I play more with art and maybe I should be bringing some of that into the poetry, <laughs> more play. Um, but um, yeah, so I haven't I haven't been making much, but it, when I am making um, art, it's collage. And that has also just been a space issue. You know, it's just spaces at a premium in New York, of course. Sure. And collage is something you can do without making a huge mess. <laughs> Yeah, I, I really liked your work. The, the monster ones that you talked about, I mean, we can link to them for people in the show notes. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah, I definitely recognize that they were pattern paper, and I thought they were really like sort of fun and dark at the same time. Uh, and some of the other collages you had up there reminded me a little bit of uh, a feature that we had in our spring issue, which was um, some photo montages by Martha Rossler. Are you familiar with her? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's, that's a nice compliment. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I, I think that you know, one of the interesting things for me about collage, again, not being any kind of art person at all, is that sometimes they're kind of uncomfortable to look at. Like they're a little bit jarring or like mm-hmm. they confuse they confuse you in, in what I assume is kind of an intentional way. And I think that there's mm-hmm. there's some of that in your work. I, I, I thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, I'm, I think the discomfort is interesting. I don't seek to make people feel uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but, but I, w- it's funny because Hannah Hawk is, uh, I don't know if you know her, um, collage artist um, from, uh, I should know her time period, more like surrealist era collage artist. And I went back to look at some of her collages um, because I want to write about one of them. And this is an instance where when I look at them now, uh, they're changed because I've changed um, mm-hmm. and I love them, but they're, they're disturbing. Um, and she is borrowing a lot from, uh, she's using a lot of African, um, African masks and, uh, and different iconography. She's created an iconography where she's kind of borrowing in a way that's, I find now very problematic, but right. they're, they feel very modern. They, they, I'm sure they, they they must've been really alarming at the time they came out. Um, but now I find them more problematic than I than I remembered finding them. I mean, they're jarring. They're I, I love her work, um, especially since she was really doing something I don't I didn't see other people 
I don't, I, I, and I may not know my art history enough to know, but it felt to me like she was doing something very novel. Um, do you know her work? Is it okay if you don't? I'm just curious. No, no, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, she's worth checking out. <laughs> cool. cool. Um, yeah. But yeah. But um, yeah, I may, I may be writing about how she's become a problem to me. <laughs> yeah. That, that definitely sounds like either a poem or an essay. <laughs> right. Uh, so I just have one last question for you, uh, which we ask everyone, which is, what are you working on now? What's next from you? What should we look out for? Yeah, I, I, uh, th- uh, I'm working on these these poems and going to Governor's Island to do some more of them. Uh, we just we just wrapped this third edition of Queensbound, which I'm just trying to get out into the world a little bit. Um, and so I think we're going to try to bring uh, poets together, not on the subway, but um, but in person once everyone's vaxxed up somewhere probably in Jackson Heights, uh, for this, for this particular edition. Uh, and then I'm, uh, for this, uh, works on water residency, I'm not only working on the, on the, uh, ekphrastic poems, which is, I think going to be the bulk of what I hope will be my next collection, but I'm also going to do, um, some interviews with scientists, uh, because Governor's Island has a, um, a lot of marine scientists who work on the island and there's a billion oyster project. There's they're both artists and scientists working on the island. Uh, and I'm going to do a series of interviews uh, of uh, scientists on the island and hoping to turn those interviews into poems. So interviewing scientists about their sites of research on the island and then creating uh, an audio map kind of in the, in the spirit of Queensbound, but an audio map of the island uh, based on where they're researching and what they're researching. So that's the other piece. I haven't figured out how it maps onto the ekphrastic or if it does, but that's the other project I'm working on. So those two things are my main focus for the next, next like six months anyway. I, I mean, the, the book is always, you know, a longer term project. Yeah. As always, you have to have your different plates spinning, right? <laughs> Seems like it. <laughs> Yeah. That sounds fascinating the, about interviewing the scientists about their work and making a map of that. You know, somewhere on our website, I'll have to send it to you. Uh, we have a, a smell map of New York City. <gasps> really? That someone oh. created. Yeah, it was long before I worked at the magazine, but it, it's it's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I, I, I used to uh, teach and work at Bard High School Early College, which is in, there's one location in Long Island City. And Long Island City, that part of Long Island City is really it's a kind of industrial, uh, the, the high school is situated in a very industrial odd spot in Long Island City. Mm-hmm. And I would have the students do psychogeographic maps of the area when they knew students. So I had them do like a smell map, a sight map, a sound map, and then come together and collaboratively map what they found wow. as a way of kind of introducing them to the neighborhood and to find the, the little bizarre gems of that were around the school that you wouldn't find unless you wandered looking. Um, yeah. That's so great. I love that as an idea to sort of welcome new students to the area. Yeah. That's great. Uh, Casey Tromer, thank you so much for joining us. It's been so great to talk with you. And, and as a non-poet, I have learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to talk to you. And I love the comment, as you know, I'm so excited to see your next issue. So thank you for including me in this. And thank you for, you know, for the invitation to read and to talk. Yeah, thank you so much for you know making the time to, to do it. Listeners, you can read Casey's poems and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org. 